pray with me now and uh, and let's dive in and get to talk a little bit. King Jesus, we thank you so much just for uh, for children. Thank you for the simplicity and the energy and the excitement um, that they can bring um, to a congregation and to our lives. Thanks so much for VBS for a time where we got to um, have some extended period to talk about your love and about what it means in their lives and and how they can display it. I pray right now, God, that your Holy Spirit would reign and that he would rule and that that you would help us to be still and that you help us to receive and that you would help us to, to remember. Um, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray, King Jesus. Amen. C.S. Lewis said, Every Christian would agree that a man's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his love for God. I'll say it one more time. Every Christian would agree that a man's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his love for God. And so I think as, as Christians then we ask, how do we increase our love for God that we might be more spiritually healthy? Right? Because we think about that, and the Bible talks about that, that spiritual health is the foundation upon which everything is built upon. Last week we talked about, and we saw that because Adam's relationship with God was broken, his physical decay ensued. And so we see that spiritual health is the foundational and, and the root upon which everything else grows and flourishes. And so if we are right accordingly spiritually, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of our health problems will go away, but it means that primarily our, our most important problem is that we are not rightly connected to God and we are not rightly connected to people. And so Lewis says, listen, if you show man, show me his love for God and I'll show you his spiritual health. And so we ask, how do we increase our love for God? Right? I mean, I think that's a really good question for us to ask. It's kind of the topic that we talked about. So you guys know the topic that we talked about with VBS. It was a blast to the past and we went back to see God's love. And so we looked at the Bible and we looked at all these different aspects of God's, God's love. And so how do we increase our, our love for God? Some people would say, listen, you need to do, right? You need to do. What happens is, is sometimes people are just receptive. They hear God loves them, but they don't act upon it. And so you need to, you need to do. And, and actions, right? There should be action when we think about God's love. If you say that you have love without works, right? If you have, you say you have faith without works, it's dead, right? And so love is displayed through works. But, but let me, let me just say this. When our love is dictated by our own strength and our own ability to love God, what happens when we run out? What happens when we don't have enough strength? What happens when you're tired? What happens when it feels like duty? When you're going through the motions and you, and you, and you feel just worn out and tired? You see, if, if our ability to love God comes from our own ability and our own actions, it will never be enough. And we will find that we will wear out quickly. Our energy battery isn't large enough to continue to love God as he deserves, as he ought to be loved. But it's important that we do this. It's important that we love um, 1 Timothy 4, 7, uh, B through 8, it says, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily discipline is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds value for the present life and also the life to come. And so he says, listen, what are you disciplining yourself in? How are you training yourself? Because we know that bodily discipline is, is purposeful. It has value, right? Health, longevity of life. He says, but if you discipline yourself for godliness, it will last far longer and it will reap more benefits. And so what we want to talk about today is, is how do we discipline ourselves for godliness and growing up and, and loving God. And uh, Lewis continues to say, um, he says, it is easy to acknowledge, it's easy to acknowledge, but almost impossible to realize for long that we are mirrors, 
We're mirrors whose brightness, if we are bright, is wholly derived from the sun that shines upon us. And so what he's saying there is that how do we grow in our love for God? It's only by realizing God's love for us. You see that we are meant to be like a cup of water that's filled up and that's drank or that's poured out. That we are meant to be like a mirror that reflects what is shown upon it. And so what we're going to do today is that we're going to go and we're going to look at different aspects of God's love. Because only when we understand God's love for us will we have the energy and the ability to love him in return and also to love others. And so how do we grow? How do we grow in God's love? How do we, how do we love God? You know, by receiving. By receiving. We grow in God's love by receiving his love and by remembering it. We had a, a theme for our youth camp, and it talked about coming to the table. And the idea of coming to the table is the idea that we come to receive from the Father because he comes to give to us. And so um, if you are a Christian and you're, you're here, um, I'm glad that you're here. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having fun with us, uh, dance with the kids. Um, but as well as I would ask this question, if you're, if you're here and you're far from God and you're perhaps not a Christian, where do you get your love from? And what happens when your love runs dry? What happens when you don't have enough love and you know that you ought to love? What happens then? Because you force yourself and you either become fake, right? Or else you become bitter. You become bitter. And for Christians, we believe that God is the source of love. And that when we aren't able to love, we can go to him. And he is the one that can give his love to us and fuel us and sustain us even when times we can't love is we go to him. For us as Christians, what I'd ask for us today is, are we receiving God's love? Because often, often it becomes something very cliche. You come in and you say, God loves you. Thanks. Yeah, God's good. Yeah, God's good all the time. And it becomes something routine, becomes something cliche. And we don't personalize it. We don't stop and actually think about what does it mean that God loves me personally, that he knows me. He knows me inside and outside, and he loves me through and through. And so have you received that? Because a lot of times there's blockages in our lives because we haven't received that. We haven't thought about that. We haven't understood that. We haven't personalized that into our lives. And so if you're a Christian here, I would ask that as we go throughout our time today, that you would personalize God's love for you. That you wouldn't just allow it to be abstract, but you would identify it with you. So you know where we're going um, each of the five days had a different theme. And so what we're going to do is we're going to very briefly walk through each of the five days and talk about what the story was for that day and talk about some implications of it. And so if you're taking notes, this would be a good time to pop out that notepad and to write down what these are. Um, but the, the first day was that, uh, was that God's love is incredible, right? So I'm, God's love is, is incredible is the first day. The second day was that God's love was faithful. So incredible. God's love is faithful. God's love is invincible was the third day. The fourth day is that God's uh, love is unconditional. God's love is unconditional. And then the fifth day was that God's love is real. That God's love is real. And so we are going to um, go fast forward through a lot of these stories. And so this is something where you hang on because we're going to go fast. Um, so day one, God's love God's love is incredible. Um, the story for day one was Moses. It was Moses in the burning bush. And so for those of you that don't know who Moses is, um, Israel, the whole nation of Israel, finds itself enslaved in Egypt. 
Egypt was using Israel as their um, workforce, and so they had enslaved them. And Moses was born in a time period where the Pharaoh of Egypt was slaughtering the males, and he was killing them because the, the Israelites were spreading so rapidly. And so he was going to kill the first, the, he was going to kill the male child, male children. And Moses was spared. Moses was spared. He was put in a basket, and uh, and one of the daughters of the Pharaoh found him. And Moses was raised up as a prince of Egypt. Right, he was raised up in the palace knowing this, and, and, but he knew at some point in time he, he came to discover that he wasn't an Egyptian, right? that he was an Israelite. And you see that Moses tried to take his role before his time, and that he, whenever he found out, he saw the oppression that the Egyptians had against his people. And in defending Israel, he killed an Egyptian. He saw an Israelite taskmaster, taskmaster um, beating one of the Israelites, and he killed him. And when he found out that Pharaoh knew, Moses ran. Moses ran away for his life. And we find, and the story kind of picks up in Exodus, uh, in Exodus chapter 3, um, with Moses dejected, rejected, running away. Um, he's in Midian, and now he's, he's married, and his father-in-law is this guy named Jethro. And for all seeming purposes, Moses is kind of washed up. He's a little bit older now. He's shepherding sheep who once used to be the prince of Egypt. Right? He once used to be a prince of Egypt. He lived a life of luxury. Now he's out in the wilderness living a hard life, shepherding sheep, and thinks that God's purpose is done. Israel's been enslaved for close to 430 years um, now. They've been enslaved for a, a long period of time. And, uh, and it's in this that God speaks. It's in this circumstance that God comes and changes everything, that we see that God's love is incredible. Um, the story is that as Moses is going, he's shepherding the sheep, and as he's walking, he sees this incredible sight, as he sees a bush that is burning but is not consumed. And he comes up to it to turn to see this great sight. And out of the burning bush, he hears God's voice. And he says, come near. And he says, but you must take off your sandals, for you are walking on holy ground. And Moses takes off his sandals, and he comes up, and he says, who is this? And, and, and God declares to him, he says, this is the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he tells Moses, he says, I've heard and I've seen the oppression of my people Israel, the oppression that has been t- given to them by the Egyptians. And he says, and I've come and I will set them free. I will deliver them. And he tells Moses, he says, through you, Moses, through you, you will be my deliverer. I will use you to set my people free. And Moses says, who, who, when I go back, who am I going to tell them sent me? You know, they're going to think I'm crazy. <laughs> hey, there's this burning bush, except it didn't really burn up. And this voice came out of it and told me to come and set you guys free. And so Moses says, okay, who am I going to say sent me? And God reveals himself. This is the first instance in the Old Testament where you have God revealing his covenant name, Yahweh. And he says, tell them I am that I am has sent you. And he tells Moses, he said, listen, It's not going to be easy. You're going to go, and Pharaoh's not going to let you go. It's going to be through mighty wonders and a strong hand that I deliver my people. And in the midst of this, in the midst of all this, like, I don't know about you guys, but if I saw a burning bush that's talking to me, I'd probably be a little humble. But Moses is like, listen, I can't talk. I don't want to do this. And you see Moses start to push back against God. Moses starts to argue with God. And he says, listen, you picked the wrong guy for the job. I, like, this isn't me. And so Moses starts to argue with God, and God, instead of, just, instead of just forcing, God works with Moses, and he meets him right at his level. 
And he says, Moses, you are going to be my deliverer. I will give you Aaron. I'll give you Aaron that will come alongside of you. And so that's the story, guys. That's the story. And we, we, most of us know the story, right? Moses goes back. He does the ten plagues, right? The ten wonders that demonstrate God's glory. And God's people are set free. And they go to worship him um, at Mount Sinai, um, Horeb. And so what, what are some ways that we see God's love is incredible? Right? What, are, what are some ways that we see God's love is incredible in this story? I think one of the first ways that we see that God's love is incredible is the burning bush. So in the burning bush, what you have is that you have God's self-revelation, right? God is revealing himself, the object of his revelation. And, and the thing is that he's revealing himself, but it's not consumed, right? What does fire do? Fire destroys, it consumes, it tears up. If you set your house on fire, it's going to burn. And so what, what the amazing thing happens is that you have God coming into this bush and he's setting it on fire, but yet it's not consumed. And it's a picture to Moses and it's a picture to us. That God is holy. God is a consuming fire, and sin cannot be in his presence. But yet he will come in the midst of us, and he will dwell with us. And so you have this question of how. How is it that God cannot stand sin, God can burn up sin, but yet he will not destroy those people that are sinful? Already you see the need for the cross. Already you see the need for Jesus. That only God could be just and satisfy the debt that our sin deserves, and yet then dwell with us. And so you see that one of the ways that God's love is incredible is that he is holy and that he's able to be with his people, that he doesn't burn up and consume his people, that he's able to dwell with us. So that's one of the ways that we see that, that, uh, that God's love is incredible. Another way that we see God's love is incredible is that God is infinite, right? You, you have this reference to God saying, I am, his, his name, I am, that I am. What it literally means is it means a self-existent one, the one that has been forever and will be forever. And so you have God revealing himself, saying, I am the self-existent one. I am the one that has been and will always be. But yet you see God condescending and humbling himself to come and relate to finite, humble, broken people. That God's not beyond knowing us personally and intimately. He says, I have seen. I have heard. I know. God knows our outcry. God knows what's going on in our lives. He knows the persecution and the affliction that we go through. God's not absent in it. God knows and he hears. So the fact that God knows he's personal, even though he is infinite. Another way that we see that God's love is incredible is that we see him display his glory. Right? God displays his glory incredibly. Right Through the ten plagues, you see that God says, listen, I am God and I will reign supreme. There is none like me and there will never be. And so he does all these ten plagues over Egypt to demonstrate his greatness and his goodness right, to Israel, is he set them free, right? God took a people that were enslaved and he set them free. And he is seen as incredible because he liberates from bondage. And so we know that God's love is incredible because he will free us from our bondage. What we are enslaved to, God has come to set us free from it. And he will do so in mighty and powerful ways, right? I mean, God split the Red Sea. God threw down ten plagues that baffled the Egyptians, and he did whatever it took to liberate his people. And we need to know that, that God will do whatever it takes to liberate his people. God is not sparse. God is not uh, stingy with his love, but he is incredible with it. He is pouring out and displaying it in order that his people might be set free. And he's done that through Christ. He's done that through Jesus, is that he has poured out his love in incredible, magnificent ways in order that we might be set free. And so those are... 
those are some ways that we see that God's love is incredible in this story. And so that was day one. Day one is that God's love is incredible. Day two, day two is that God's love is, is faithful. God is faithful to his love. And so the story that we have for this day is from Joshua chapter two. So you, you fast forward, we have Moses, the people of Israel have been set free. And after Moses dies, there's a guy named Joshua that raises up. And God promised to Moses, he said, listen, I'm going to set you free from, from Egypt. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a land that's flowing with milk and honey, and I will, I will deliver this to you. And so Joshua 2, you have Joshua hiring these two spies, and Joshua says, listen, I want you to go into the cities, and I want you to scout out the cities. I want you to report back to me what's going on, because God had promised the land to Israel, and Israel was coming to take possession of the land that God had promised to them. And so you have two spies that go in, and they go into Jericho, and they're scouting out Jericho. But the king hears about it. The king of Jericho hears that the two spies are there, and so he's seeking their heads. He's seeking their life. And they are in a, a prostitute's house named Rahab. Rahab is, is allowing them to stay with her. And the king hears that the spies are in Rahab's house. And so the king comes, and he, he sends his messengers, and they come, and they say, We know that the spies are here. Tell us where, tell, tell us where they are. And Rahab lies, right? She, she lies in this instance. She says, you're right. They came. They came here, but they've gone out. And so I think they went through the hill country, and so you should go and pursue them. All the while, she hid the spies in the top, in, in this, like, flocks, or flax, it calls it. Um, basically, it's a bunch of, like, hay and barrel. that they, she, she hid them underneath that. And so the, the king and the, and the soldiers go, and they go out through the country seeking to find them. And... And the reason that Rahab did this, why, why is it that Rahab betrayed her country, she betrayed her town, she did all of these things, is because she feared the Lord. She tells the spies, she says, listen, the dread of you is on us. She said, we've heard what your God did when he plundered, when you plundered the Egyptians and when he sent them plagues and how he parted the Red Sea and the fear of you and the fear of your God is upon us. And so Rahab says, listen, I will spare you if you will in turn promise to spare me, if you will promise that when you come and when you devote this town to destruction, that you will spare me and my family. And the spies agree and they say, the only thing that you must do, as they said, you must take your whole family and you must hide them together and you must put them in this area when we come to destroy the city. And she says, we will, you must put this red scarlet cord outside of your window that will mark where your place is. And when we come, if you have that cord, we will pass over, and we will not devote your your family and your place to destruction. So that's the story. How do we see God's love as faithful? Right? How do we see God's love as faithful? I think we see God's love as faithful in two different ways in this story. The first one is that we see that God's love is faithful, that he will bring about what he's promised. God, when God makes a promise, God keeps his promise. And God promised to the people that he would give them the land. And God used sometimes the most uncommon ways and the most uncommon means to accomplish his promise. God used a prostitute and God used spies to bring about the promise that he had given to Israel. When God makes a promise to us through his word, he will bring it to completion, sometimes in the most uncommon and strange ways, but he will. And I think another way that we see God's faithfulness is that we see in the red thread, and the red scarlet cord that Rahab hung out of her window. Now I can't help but think that when Israel saw 
that red scarlet cord, they thought of Passover. They thought of the blood that was put upon the doorpost that the angel of death might pass over them, that they might be spared. I can't help but think of the cross, the blood that was shed, that God's wrath might be passed over on us. And so we see that God is faithful and that he doesn't just destroy wickedness, right? He, he doesn't just destroy us along with wickedness, but instead he, he gives us a way out. He gives us the ability to be spared. And we see that Rahab not only was spared, but actually was used for from Rahab, from a prostitute, God used to bring about King David. And God, was, God used to bring about his son, Jesus. And so just because you've had a bad past doesn't mean that God's faithful love isn't going to still use you. Your past doesn't determine your future. God can always change. God can always change you. God can always change um, what you've done to use it. So that was day two. God's love was incredible. God's love is faithful. And now day three, we have God's love is invincible. Right? God's love is invincible. And the story for this day was about David, King David and Goliath. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And before that, you have, um, you have the kings, right? And so Israel now has come. They've conquered the land. Um, you guys are getting a little Old Testament survey along the way. Um, but Israel's come and they've conquered the land. Right? They've taken over the land, and they had a period of judges, and now they have their first kings. Right? They have monarchs that are ruling over the nation. And so Saul is the first king. And, and right before, you see, Saul has displeased the Lord. Saul did not walk after the ways of God. And so his anointing was taken off of him, and it was given to David. And so you have David fights Goliath, right? That's the story that we talk about for this day. But to know and understand that context of why that's so important, we need to realize that the chapter before in 1 Samuel 16, God has taken his anointing off of Saul and God has then put his anointing on David. And so right before David slays Goliath, David is anointed by God as the one who's going to come and be king of his people. And so what we see is that David has been anointed as king, but he hasn't taken the throne yet. And so he's still just a young shepherd boy, right? It, the, the text actually says that he's ruddy and handsome in appearance. And so, um, and so apparently he was something for the eyes. And, uh, and so David, David is still young, and he's a shepherd, and he's watching after his father's flock of sheep. But yet the, the Israelites and the Philistines are at war with one another, is that they're fighting for the land. And Saul has all of Israel up, and they're, they're fighting. But each day, each day, there's a warrior from the Philistines called Goliath. He's a mammoth man, over um, nine and a half feet tall. And uh, he comes forth each day, and he taunts the armies of Israel. And he says, listen, why don't you send a man out to fight me? If you send a man out to fight me, we can settle this. There doesn't even be any bloodshed. But if, if I win then you are our slaves. But if you win, then we will be your slaves. And so you see that he was this head that represented the Philistine army. And, and for 40 days, for 40 days, Goliath came out and he mocked Israel. And he mocked Israel's God. And he taunted them. Now David is just a little shepherd's boy. And his father had sent him from, the, from herding and shepherding the sheep to his brothers, his three older brothers who were in the war. And his, his father sent him with, um, with food for his brothers as well as for food for their commander. And so David comes to the battle bringing these food as a messenger boy. And right as he comes, he hears Goliath taunting Israel. And he turns to his brother and he says, Who is this? Who is this Philistine that taunts and defies the armies of, of the living God? 
And he, he asks again, his, and his older brother chides him. His older brother gets on to him. He's like, what are you doing out here, Pipsqueak? Like, go back home to dad. You know, you don't, you don't belong out here in the battlefield. And, and stop asking questions. And so his older brother chides him, but he goes to somebody else and he asks again. He says, what's, what's going on here? Is no one man enough? Is no one going to slay this, this one who defies this uncircumcised Philistine? And Saul, the king, catches catches ear, catches wind that there's someone who's defying Goliath, someone who's talking about that they can take down Goliath. And so Saul calls forth David, and he calls David. And I'm guessing Saul probably gets a look at David, probably didn't know who it was that was talking all of this stuff and was excited to see the warrior that steps forth. And in steps forth David, and Saul says, what, Who are you? You're but a youth. You can't fight Goliath. Goliath has fought since he was a youth. And and David comes and David says, listen, I've slayed lions and I've slayed bears by God. God has given me the strength. When one came to take forth from the flock, I went and I grabbed it by the beard and I slayed it with the, with the Lord's help. The Lord through me did that. And he says, this uncircumcised Philistine will be as one of them in my hand. And so Saul, Saul lets him to it. Saul gives him and says, okay, you, you go for it. And, and they start to put the armor on David. They start to load him down, and David, and David gets in the armor, and he says, this isn't tested, I can't do this. And so if, if it didn't seem silly enough that you're sending out a young boy who's never seen battle but comes actually as a messenger, but now you take arm, armor off of him, and you send him out with, with no armor, right? And so David grabs five stones, and he puts them in the pouch. And he comes out, and he begins to, uh, to talk to uh, Goliath, and Goliath starts to, to mock him. He starts to mock him. He says, you're but a youth, and I will, I will give your body for the birds. The birds will, will eat you this day. And, uh, and David turns, and he says this. Sorry. David said to the Philistines, he says, you come to me with a sword, and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all in this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and we will give, and He will give you into our hand. And so David says this to Goliath, and it says that he ran towards the battle. That when it when it came, you see Goliath. Goliath has his shield bare, and David runs into the battle, and he takes one stone and he and he slings it, and it goes right into the forehead of Goliath, and he drops. Right, this mammoth man, who had fought and slayed since his youth falls to the ground by a little shepherd messenger boy. And he goes and he takes Goliath's sword and cuts off his head. And that day they won. That day Israel pursued the Philistines and overcame them. Right? And so that's the story. So what do we learn? How do we see that God's love is invincible? How do we see that God's love is invincible? One of the ways that we see that God's love is invincible is that he overcomes seemingly impossible obstacles through weakness, through frailty, through the most uncommon and unseeming ways. 
right? I mean, who would suspect that a little messenger boy come from the flock to give his brothers food would then trust enough in the living God to set forth and would slay the giant who had been mocking men of war, men who had waged war for a good part of their lives, would, would step forward and would slay the giant. Who would have thought that a weak carpenter who came forth from an unknown city, who was obscure, right, but came in, and through great popularity and through a cross, right, who was mocked, who was beaten, whose beard was torn, who was hammered and was crucified, who was whipped, whoever thought that that would be the salvation of the world? Whoever thought that that would be the source of our greatest strength? You see what this says is that we see that God's love is invincible and that it, it defeats our greatest enemies through what we think is our greatest weaknesses. It is through death that Jesus beat death. And sometimes it's our greatest weaknesses that God uses to bring about his greatest strength. Because you see, when we are weak, he is strong. God is about getting the glory. God is about making his name known. And you see, often we are in the, we are in the way. <laughs> We are in the way. We want our name to be big. We want our name to be known. We want to be prominent. We want to be important. And what you see with David is that David says, listen, it's not about me. It's about God. And I put my trust in him. And he will deliver. He will save. He will rescue. And so you see that God is invincible because he overcomes seemingly impossible obstacles through weakness. Another way that we see is that we are only as strong as what we put our trust in. Listen, you're only as strong as what you put your trust in. And so what do we put our trust in? The only source of David's strength was that his trust was in the Lord. The only source of our strength is that we trust in the Lord. Do you see when hard times happen, when, when tough circumstances arise, what is revealed is where your trust is at. And the only way that we overcome any obstacle in our life is through seeing that only the Lord can overcome these things through us. It's through us. We must see that Jesus is our strength, that he is our source, that he is the one that we can build our life upon, and that he is steadfast and sure and immovable. And because we have built our house and our life upon him, he can conquer. You see, what often happens with this story is that people see this story and they think about, well, what are the Goliaths in my life, and how can I overcome the Goliaths in my life? Well, listen, there are things that you're not going to be overcoming your own strength. Right? There's a lot of things. You're not going to be able to beat death. You're not going to be able to beat sin. Right? There's pride and selfishness in all of us that none, no amount of willpower is going to overcome. And unless you see that Jesus has overcome those things for you, you are bound to repeat the, thing, the same folly over and over and over again. You're bound to be defeated. But when we trust, see, we need to trust in Christ that he is able to defeat these things and he declares the victory for us. Jesus is the greater David who came and slayed the giants that none of us could slay. And it's through trusting in his victory that we can be saved. It's in trusting his victory that we can be saved. So we see that God's love is invincible. And one last, one last point in this is that that was a pretty bad circumstance, wasn't it? Right? I mean, David has come out and it seems pretty hopeless. Right? You've got this guy that's been doing this for 40 days and nobody's replied. I'm sure Israel was pretty dejected. Can't you imagine? I mean, they see this giant guy for 40 days. They're being taunted and none of them step up. I mean, that doesn't, that's not good for morality. <laughs> you're, not, you're not really encouraged when you look around and everybody's like, I'm scared too. And so you, you have a pretty dejected position. 
But it's only in the midst of these circumstances that God reveals his incredible love, his invincible love. And so we often try to avoid these circumstances, right? We do everything that we can do to avoid all of these circumstances to get away from the, the trials and the hard times and, uh, and the places where we can't do it. But don't you see that it's in, these, in the midst of these circumstances that God reveals his love is, in, is invincible. And it's only in these circumstances. And so sometimes we need to listen and understand that God is actually bringing us to this point because it's in this point that God will reveal his love is incredible, is invincible, right? And so, at least for me, that really struck me because so much of our life is, is straught with fighting against that. It's straught with fighting against weakness and against um, anything that will lay us bare to where we can't do. But don't you see it's only in those moments that we really get to grasp the invincibility of God's love. And so sometimes it's we're fighting against God, who's actually bringing us to those points that he might reveal himself. Do you think that God was about setting up that position? I think God was sovereignly orchestrating that David would be there and that God might show his in, invincible love through David. So God might be orchestrating, God might be moving in our lives to bring about a time where we see that his love is invincible. Don't fight against it. Allow God to bring us to these moments where we rely upon him. Um, fourth, so the fourth story is that God's love, God's love is faithful. Right? God's love is, is faithful. The story for this switches for, so we fast forward. We had King David, and now we just get to skip all the prophets, and, uh, and we arrive at Jesus. And so uh, Jesus comes. And he is doing his ministry. And this passage is in Luke 7. Um, it's, uh, it's Luke 7, 36 through 50. And Jesus has come into a Pharisee's house. A Pharisee, teacher of the law, has invited Jesus to come in and have dinner with him. This is a pretty prominent man who would have been known in the city. He would have been a man of some influence and of some power. And so he comes and he invites Jesus into a dinner with him. He invites him to come and, and feast. And so Jesus comes, and while in the middle of this dinner, in the middle of this who's who would have been here, people of influence, people of power, people with political influence, religious influence, social influence, all of these people would have been here. There's a prostitute that would have been wide known throughout the city. Everybody would have known who she was. She was deemed in a caste system as a sinner, literally in India, they have caste systems, and that was much what it was like in the, in the first century, is that there were caste systems, and someone who was deemed in a caste of sinner by their actions. And this woman would have been in the caste of sinner of unclean, people that you didn't associate with. And this woman hears that Jesus has come. She hears that Jesus is in town, and she hears that Jesus is in this man's house, in this Pharisee's house. And she's so desperate for Jesus, so desperate to be near him, to touch him, to have his love, that she comes into a Pharisee's house. I mean, this is a big deal. This is a big no-no. You don't just pop into somebody's house, especially somebody who's in this kind of power. And she comes into his house, and she sees Jesus, and she weeps at his feet. She's so uncontrollably broken by being near Jesus and by being with him and by his love for her that she weeps and she takes this very expensive ointment and she pours it out over his feet, preparing him and bathing him. And she takes her hair and she washes his feet. And Simon, the, the Pharisee in this moment, seeing this woman 
thinks to himself, which is always cool when, when people think something to themselves and Jesus knows it. Um, you know, it just is kind of like, be careful what you think. <laughs> Jesus knows everything. And so he thinks to himself, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this is, he wouldn't let it. He wouldn't let her touch him. He wouldn't let her touch him. And Jesus in that moment, knowing what he thinks, turns to him and he says, Simon, tell me this. There were two people, one owed 50 denarii and another owed, yeah, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And he says, and, and when, when they could not pay, right, the debt was canceled. He says, who was, who was forgiven more? Who's forgiven more? You know, and he, and he says, the, the person that owed the 500, right? The person that owed the 500. And, uh, or he says, sorry, now which of them will, he says, um, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning toward Simon, Jesus turns and he says to Simon, he says, I came in and you neither kissed me for a greeting. You didn't wash my my hands or my feet. You haven't embraced me, but but she has come and she has washed my feet with her tears. She has given me ointment and she has shown me thankfulness and love. And he says, Her sins, though they are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. For she loved much. And he says, Simon says to himself, he says, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so that's the story. So how do we see that God's love is unconditional? How do we see that that God's love is, is unconditional? First, I think it's important that we ask the question of what is unconditional? What is unconditional love? What Jesus shows us in this passage is that unconditional love is showing acceptance and care and compassion and concern for a person while not embracing their sin. Jesus doesn't negate her sin, does he? Jesus says, no, though your sins are many, though your sins are many, you are forgiven. Jesus looks at her and he knows her sin. He knows what's going on, but he sees her. He sees her. And he's able to love her and to show her compassion and embrace and, and care for her deeply and ultimately, even while hating her sin. Even while hating her sin. And so unconditional love is doing that, is being with people and being able to say, listen, I may hate your sin. I may hate what it does to you, what it does to God, but I love you deeply. I love you deeply. I don't know about you guys, but the, the thing that has changed my life the most has been has been when God, moments of stillness, moments of silence, where I realize my sin, where I'm cut to the core of my pride, my selfishness, my lust, and God reveals and I see clearly how evil it really is. Because there are moments where sin's pleasing, where we go seasons, where we enjoy it, and then there's times where the Lord just peels back our eyes and we're able to see the horrendousness of our own sin. It's in those moments that God says, I hate that but I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving you. That it changes the very centerpiece of your heart. For you that are in marriages, for you that are in close relationships, isn't that not the deepest, most moving moments in your life? Is it when you've done something that is evil, that is selfish, that is prideful, and you know it, 
and you know the harm that is done, that it's doing to you and it's doing to others. And they turn to you knowing, and you see the pain in their eyes, and they turn to you and say, I love you, and I'm not going anywhere. That changes you. That moves you. And you see that that is what God has done for us in Jesus. Is that he, he took the full brunt of our evil upon the cross, and he, he declares to us, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving. I'm here for the long haul. Jesus said in, in, in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. God started something in us, and he will finish the job. That is amazing. That is unconditional love. And you see, it's only when we've received this kind of love, only when we've seen it through Jesus, can we in turn show it to others. Another thing that we see with unconditional love here is that we see the results of it. Do you see, what are the results of Jesus' love in her life? She's broken, right? I mean, she is, is broken. We can't truly experience unconditional love and stay the same. We can't. I mean, it, it just it defies it. Like when we are truly experiencing unconditional love, it breaks us, it humbles us, it moves us, it demands response. And so if we, we can say, yes, God loves me, yes, I understand this, but if we don't leave changed, if we are not broken, if we are not moved, then we have failed to receive it. We have failed to receive it. You see, so often we think our problem is with showing love, but our problem is that we aren't truly receiving it. We aren't truly taking it in and believing it and understanding it. For if we believed it, if we knew it, then we would begin to show it. Our problem is that we have a problem of receiving. There's a quote that says, Legalism says God will love us if we change. The gospel says God will change us because he loves us. Legalism says that we must change in order that God might love us. The gospel says that God loves us, and therefore we will change. Luther says this. He says, The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent, that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ, and must take matters into our own hands. Do you see that what most of the time we believe is that we believe that God doesn't love us unconditionally, so we must work to, to be loved. We must be lovable. And so we have to do all these things that must please God in order that he might look down and see that, well, they're working pretty hard, so I guess now I can love them. Or they're doing all of these things, so I guess now I can shower a little bit of my love on them. And just you see that that's controlling God. We can't dictate God. God shows his love without reserve, and he pours it down upon us unconditionally, unconditionally. And so that was, that was day four. That was day four. The last day, the last day was that God's love is real. So just in review of the five days, we have that God's love is incredible. We've seen with Moses, right? We have God's love is faithful with Rahab. We have God's love is invincible with David. And we have God's love is unconditional with the prostitute being at Simon's house. And the last one is that we have God's love is real. God's love is real. The story for this is in Acts 12. And Peter is the one being portrayed here. And what you have in the book of Acts is that Jesus appears and he tells the disciples to go to all nations to proclaim the gospel. And he gives them the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is poured out and give, they are given power from on high, clothed from power on high, to go and to proclaim the gospel. 
Well, they didn't do that for a while. It's only until chapter 6 that persecution breaks out in the book of Acts and then the apostles spread everywhere because of the persecution. They start to proclaim the gospel all over the place. In Acts 10, you have Peter now go and you see the first Gentile converts to Christianity is that Peter goes and he proclaims the gospel to Cornelius and his household. And so you see that Gentiles are coming to know and the church of God is spreading. Right, The church of God is spreading, so it's not just in Jerusalem. It's coming all around and is being known by the Jews more and more, and they're seeing how prominent it is. And so they're seeking to destroy and to persecute it. And so in Acts 12, King Herod, seeking to please the Jews, takes some of the Christian leaders and begins to kill some of the apostles. And so James, the brother of John, is killed by the sword. King Herod comes and he, and he kills James. And then seeing that that pleased the Jews, seeing that that pleased the leaders, he takes Peter and he throws Peter in prison to be killed later. Now the early church, by earnest prayer, begged God to free Peter from prison. Peter, soon to be executed, is praying to the Lord. And it's at the, at the late night of the day, or the, in, in the late watches uh, of the day, that the guards are asleep, and that Peter sees an angel, right? And at first it says he thought he saw a vision. So, like, Peter, Peter's probably thinking, like, I, it's near death. I'm probably hallucinating. And he sees an angel, and the angel comes, and it lets Peter out. And it says, follow me. And it says that Peter, even up until they were out of the jail, thought that it was a vision, right? And so Peter's, like, kind of following us along, and I don't know if he just thought it was a dream. You know, he's like, this is a great dream. I'm getting freed. And, but Peter goes and he finds himself outside of the prison and the angel has released him. And so he goes to, uh, he goes to the believer's household and he knocks on the door and one of the servants comes up and she sees that it's Peter. And I don't know if she just like got too excited and forgot to let him in, but she didn't let him in. She didn't let him in. And so she like goes back and wakes everybody and she's like, it's Peter, it's Peter. And Peter's still like knocking on the door like, hey, they just put me in prison. Please let me in. Um, and so they, she, they don't believe her. They don't believe her. And so finally they come out and they, they see Peter. They see God's deliverance of Peter from prison and they rejoice. Later on in, in, in Jane, or later on in Acts 12, we see that King Herod ends up dying as a result of his, of his sin. Um, him being prideful and him boasting about himself and taking glory in his own ability. And so he dies. But, so what, that's the story, is that God's love is real because he, he, freed, he freed Peter from, from prison. But what are some ways that we see, what are some ways that we see that God's love is real here? I think one of the big ways that we see God's love is real is that we see that God uses his church to demonstrate his love. Right? That you see a direct correlation between, it says, and the church prayed intensely, they prayed heavily. And it was a result of their prayers that we see that Peter's released. Is that we, God has chosen to reveal his love through us. We are the revelation of God's love. We are his hands and his feet. God's love is real. It is tangible. It is felt. It's not just an imagination. It's not just in far off time. God demonstrates his love really right here and right now through us, through the church. And so God's love isn't something that you can just read about in the Bible. It's something that you can experience in your own life. It's something that you can be the means to helping others experience it. There's a whole world out there, a whole, whole large group of people that, don't, that think the idea of God is a fairy tale, that think that this idea is something insane and that we, all of us are out of our minds. Now what they can't deny 
is that his love is real when we love them. The way that we demonstrate to God, the, the, the way that we demonstrate to the world that God is real is through our love. Right? It is love that sets us free. It is love that convinces us. And I promise you that when we love people truly and deeply, the Lord will work through that. And so let us, let us love people. Just a, a couple quotes before we close in prayer. It says, Though we are incomplete, God loves us completely. Though we are imperfect, he loves us perfectly. Though we may feel lost and without compass, God's love encompasses us completely. He loves every one of us, even those who are flawed, rejected, awkward, sorrowful, or broken. Have you received God's love? Do you believe it? Do you trust it? Is it what you hold on to day after day, week after week, year after year? Because it is consistent. Only God's love will save you. Only it will rescue you. Only it will empower you to be who you know you ought to be. Only his love will free you. His love is real. His love is faithful. It's unconditional. It's invincible. It's incredible. It's all of these things and more. And it's only when we realize these things can we show these things to others. So I want to close and um, I want to read this passage because Paul prays this. Paul prays this in Ephesians 3, verse 14. Is that he prays, there's a lot of things that we can pray for one another about. Paul prays that we would have the strength to understand God's love. Because it requires strength to see and to know the fullness and the depth that God has loved us. And so if you would bow your heads, let me read this as a prayer over us as we leave. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we think, than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.